You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Amen. Well, beloved, we continue on in our series through the book of Romans, and we find ourselves this morning continuing on more specifically in Romans chapter 8 often referred to as the Great Eight, right, for good reason. Romans 8 is a wonderful testimony of the power of God's grace. It is a wonderful and glorious testimony of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as a Savior. And all of this is meant for the comfort and the assurance, the peace of God's people. And that is true. Comfort assurance, peace. Those things are meant for us to have even when we take into account the sufferings of this present life. The Bible is not silent about them, you know, present sufferings, that is. And unlike us, the scriptures do not contain anything trite or pretentious or sentimental or dishonest when it comes to the reality of suffering in this life under the sun. Read Ecclesiastes. Read Job. Read the Psalms. Read the history books of the Old Testament. Read the prophets. Read Lamentations. And there isn't hardly a New Testament book that does not describe or acknowledge in some way the suffering of the saints. The God who inspired the scriptures doesn't do cute. He doesn't offer platitudes. He shows us time and time again that he has a profound understanding of our plight in all of its forms. And he holds out to us in the midst of it an eternal hope. An eternal hope that is certain because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you have not already done so, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking today at verses 18 to 25 of this great chapter. And as you are turning and making your way there, allow me to give us a few comments by way of overview, just where we've been in the chapter that we're currently finding ourselves in. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, we considered a couple of weeks ago how there is Therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful and magnificent statement of fact and certainty. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who have been united to Christ. Why? Because the gospel has set us free from the law as a covenant of works to either be saved or condemned by it. Jesus has set us free. God did what the law weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. Remember, there's nothing wrong with the law whatsoever. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. The problem is our sinful flesh. We cannot live up to its standard. We cannot keep it for righteousness. So God did what we could never do. He saved us, and he did this by sending his son in the likeness of our flesh to keep the law and to die for sin so that all of the righteous requirements of the law, both its penalty and its precepts, 
might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. That is, who walk by faith in Christ and submit to God's righteousness that we receive by faith. Then in verses 5 to 17, Paul goes on to describe the contrast between those who are according to the flesh on the one hand and those who are according to the Spirit on the other. The condition of the former is one of death and hostility toward God. The condition of the latter is one of eternal life and peace with him. Those who are according to the Spirit are spiritually minded and have the Spirit of Christ. Our bodies, it is true, will die. But a day is coming when our bodies will be raised without corruption by the power of the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And regarding that Spirit, Paul writes that we are led by Him. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. He is to us a Father now. No longer our judge for us to live in dread of Him, but now our Father. Because we've been adopted as his children, we are now his heirs. We have an inheritance that's coming. And that inheritance is certain because it belongs to Jesus and we are united to him. But Paul begins to introduce a pivot in verse 17. Provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus came to this inheritance, through the cross. So it only follows that we will come to this inheritance in the same manner, meaning we too will suffer. Now this is hard for us. And frankly, it's not what we would expect. It's hard for us at an existential level. We don't want to suffer. We prefer comfort. It's also hard for us in our minds to reconcile this. If we are sons and daughters of the king, How is it that we suffer? Doesn't make sense to us in our human reasoning. The testimony of the scripture, though, is that we too will come to possess our eternal inheritance through tribulation, not triumphant ease. Suffering is our reality in this life. One of the great tasks of a pastor is to prepare us, myself included, to suffer, because we will. And we thank the Lord that words like these found in Romans chapter 8 are in the Scripture, because in these verses, Paul means to encourage us with the certainty of our eternal hope and the certainty of our final deliverance through Christ. May he encourage our souls today as we look to it. Let's look to the Scriptures now beginning in Romans 8 and verse 18. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan this morning is to consider the text in three points, and then I've got three reflections after that, the last of which is our conclusion. I'll try to make that plain to you if you're taking notes sitting there this morning. So let's look to the text, point one, present suffering and future glory. Point one, present suffering and future glory. Put your eyes on verse 18. For I consider, says Paul, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now that is not a statement about the smallness of the sufferings. It's a statement about the greatness of the glory. There's a difference. It's not that the sufferings are trivial. It's not that the sufferings in and of themselves aren't bad or hard. It's that the glory that's coming is that magnificent. Remember, Paul is the same man who penned these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. But hey, God won't give you more than you can handle, right? So they say. What Paul means to do here is to lift our eyes from our suffering and fix them on the eternal promises of God in Christ. No eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Look to that is the exhortation. It is beyond that glory that awaits, is beyond all comparison. We heard those words read earlier. The Lord, even now, gives us glimpses of it sometimes, does he not? We experience foretastes of what our final deliverance will be. And even that we should see as God's goodness to us to help us to lift our eyes from ourselves and our own predicament, to consider the glory that's coming, and to produce in us a good kind of longing for the new heavens and the new earth. So that was a very brief point one. Present suffering, future glory. Let's now move to point two. The creation groans for deliverance, and so do we. The creation groans for deliverance, and so do we. We're going to look at verses 19 to 23 for the next few moments. Beginning in verse 19, Paul turns his attention to the entire creation. How it waits, and it longs for deliverance. Verse 19, we see the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That means that's pointing to the time 
That day that's coming when all of the sons and daughters of God will be raised, incorruptible and imperishable. The creation longs for that day. The creation longs for the day when we will put off corruption and put on glory for all of eternity. Verse 20, we read that the creation was subjected to futility. You could read that, put in bondage to corruption. Now, the creation didn't willingly take this upon itself, but it was subjected to this futility and to this corruption because of the curse of Adam's covenant that he broke. Verse 21. We see that the creation itself presently is in bondage and will be set free from it. That bondage that it's under because the covenant of works was broken, it will be set free from it when Jesus inherits his people and presents us pure and blameless before the throne of God. Think about this. This is a marvelous thought that the sin of man has caused the very creation to mourn. But the mercy of God in Christ will cause that same creation to rejoice. Consider the words of the scriptures. Psalm 98. How the mercy of God in Christ will cause the creation itself to rejoice. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And what's the response of the creation? Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Praise God. Consider the words of the prophet Isaiah. From Isaiah 49 here. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 44, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, and O forest, and every tree that is in it. Why? For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Isaiah 55, for you shall go out. You, the people of God, shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. The sin of man has caused the creation to mourn. The mercy of God in Christ will cause it to rejoice. And the creation longs for that day. Verse 22, for now though, The creation doesn't rejoice. The creation groans. You see this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. We can look all around us and see the groaning of the creation. 
I know in the Purdue household these days, we're watching a lot of National Geographic type stuff. We're watching things about sharks right now. I always liked Shark Week as a kid, so I'm, I'm here for it, right? But even in watching some of these wonderful depictions of creatures and nature and weather and all of these things, we see how the creation is groaning. Earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, natural disasters, they're called. Animals that devour one another. Sometimes animals are the victims of human cruelty. And in many instances, there is obvious enmity between mankind and the animal world. It's not how the world was originally made. Everything in the created order now is fading and perishing. It wears out like a garment. So this friend, is the significance of our sin. It has corrupted the entire created order, and it has subjected it all to futility. Verse 23, we see, though, that it is not just the creation that groans. We groan as well. Even we being the saints, the sons and daughters of God, we groan. Not only the creation, says Paul, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. As in everything Paul has been writing, he means to include all believers here. All of the faithful, says John Calvin, who in this world are besprinkled only with a few drops by the Spirit, are included in this we. We groan as we await the culmination of our adoption. The culmination of our adoption as sons and daughters of God is none other than our bodily resurrection. We groan as we wait for it. And again, John Calvin says, in groaning, there is a deep feeling of misery. I'm quoting him because I don't want you to just take my word for it. We groan. Nothing less then our bodily resurrection to live with God forever, you understand, was the goal of Christ's work. Nothing less than our bodily resurrection to live with God forever is the end of the gospel. The eternal plan and decree of God would be empty if our promised resurrection was not certain. One could rightly ask, To what end is God our Father if he does not receive us into his heavenly inheritance after our earthly lives are over? Nothing less than our bodily resurrection unto life forever with Christ was the goal of Christ's work. In that eternal covenant of redemption that was made before the world began, This was the plan, that God the Son would take on flesh, he would come and live and die and rise again to save a people who would be his inheritance. And this resurrected and glorified people would live with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. That is the goal and end of the plan of God. It is the goal and end of the gospel. 
Consider the love of God for us and the plan of God for us from all eternity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He didn't choose us because we were something. He chose us so that we might be something, holy and blameless with him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You're familiar with this passage in Ephesians 1. The last two verses of that section read this way. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We thank God and praise him for these things. And yet for now, we groan. Yes, even the saints, with all of our blessings, with the blessed freedom that we enjoy, freedom from the tyranny of sin, Freedom from sin's guilt. Freedom unto righteousness. Freedom from the fear of death. Freedom from the tyranny of the evil one. We still, in this life under the sun, find it difficult to bear up under the weight that we carry with us. We carry a body of sin and death. Paul had groaned already in this letter about this very thing. You remember the end of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am. That's groaning. Who will deliver me? That's a cry out of grief. Save me. I need a savior. Who's going to rescue me from this plight? The saints, saved as we are, groan because of indwelling sin. We groan because of the temptations of Satan and the temptations of the world. We groan because of all of the evils that still afflict our bodies and our souls. Even at the best of times in this life, we're mindful of these things and we feel them. Many in the room are probably not unlike me. Often as we are enjoying the good things in this life, there is this haunting thing back here reminding us that as good as this is right now, nothing lasts that's good in this life. It's life under the sun. Point three in the text. Hoping for what we don't see. Hoping for what we don't see. We're going to look briefly at verses 24 and 5. Verse 24. Paul writes that in this hope, We were saved. What hope's he talking about? He's talking about the hope of bodily resurrection and eternal redemption through Christ. In this hope, we were saved. When it comes to our salvation, we have to talk honestly about it. Hope that is seen is not hope, Paul says. Who hopes for what he sees? If we hope for what we don't see, we wait it with patience. That's where he's going. When it comes to our salvation, all of these things are true. 
Before the foundation of the world, our names have been written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Before the foundation of the world, we have been chosen in grace in Christ. And in time and space, we, by the grace of God, by the act of his spirit, have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We have been united to Jesus and God has made us alive with him. That has happened. And the complete eradication of sin from our souls and our bodies being made like Christ's glorious body, these are things that we only know and enjoy in hope. And hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? It's straightforward what Paul is doing. Once we see our salvation, it means that it will have been fully realized. It's certain now, but it has not been fully realized yet. Thus, the groaning. Once we see it, it will be fully realized. Once we see it, obviously, we no longer live by faith. We no longer live by hope. We live by sight then. We will no longer hope for it. We will be in possession of the thing hoped for. That day's coming. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known, says Paul. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are his children now, says the Apostle John. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What's coming? Verse 25, if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Between now and the enjoyment of the thing hoped for, there is an intervening delay. And so waiting is our portion now. Which brings us to our our time of reflection together. I have three points of reflection. Again, the last one being our conclusion. Let's think together about the scriptures. Number one, let's think about our present sufferings and the gospel. Our present sufferings and the gospel. I love the phrase in Ecclesiastes that is used over and over again, life under the sun. It's a good way to describe this existence. Many are familiar with Solomon's writing where he laments the fact that in the world that exists under the sun, in this life under the sun, the wise man dies just like the fool. In other words, you can can pursue as much pleasure as you want, not going to fix the problem. You can be as morally upright as you want. It won't fix it either. Only a righteousness from heaven could fix this. And we thank God that that's what he planned to do. 
Think about your own life. Think about present sufferings in the gospel. Think of your life. Think of your most marvelous moments. Those moments that when you're experiencing them, you're like, man, I hope I never forget this this time. Think of your best works, your greatest achievements. Or think of yourself, regardless of your age right now, think of yourself in the height of your youth and vibrancy. Maybe you've met the one who's going to be your lover for the rest of your life, and you're thrilled about it. Maybe there's bliss and happiness. There's children. But one day, all of those things will be a memory. And then they will be gone from the earth. Sin has done this to us. We have done this to us. And God has let it be. That's where we say, but Jesus came. He kept the law, loving God and neighbor perfectly every moment of his life. At the end of his life, a cross stood there. But then a tomb was emptied and death died 2,000 years ago. Through faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect satisfaction that he made for sins is counted to sinners. Through faith in Christ, his perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness, as was prayed earlier, is counted to sinners. We rejoice over these truths that the good news is that by faith in Jesus Christ, it is as though we have never sinned, and it is as though we have never been sinners in the first place, And it is as though we have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was. His record is counted to us. And so, all who are united to Jesus in faith, though we will die, we can say these words. We know that our Redeemer lives. And that we shall rise out of the earth on the last day and shall be covered again with our skin and shall see God in our flesh, not with other, but with these same eyes, we will behold him. This is the hope that Paul is writing about in Romans 8. This is the only hope that can deal with the things that we wrestle with in our soul. For now, we have received the promise of our salvation. And at times we have foretastes of it, as we've already acknowledged. And yet we groan under the weight of our remaining corruption. Under the weight of living in a fallen world where we experience trials and heartbreaks of various kinds. We're burdened by the weight of temporal death. And beloved saints of Covenant Baptist Church, we are going to experience a lot of this together. We are going to bury loved ones together. 
We're going to weep. Essentially a lot together. We do not yet live in full possession of our salvation. If we did, faith would no longer be the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. Things hoped for are not things that are enjoyed in full now. Our great happiness and peace and joy, it's in the future. And the happiness and the peace and joy we have now, we have by faith and hope. And why do we have it? Because that future reality is certain because of Christ. Question for us. I'm not going to answer it exhaustively, obviously. What does wisdom look like now? What does wisdom look like now? In light of all of this, Two major things. First thing we can say about what wisdom looks like now in light of everything we're considering. One, we uphold that there are good things in this life. Amen? There are good things. Our spouses, our kids, our friends, our food and our drink, our homes, our jobs, music, art, architecture, sport, the beauty of the creation. These things are good. None of these things are insignificant. We do not ignore them or dismiss them because death is a certainty and the new heavens and the new earth are coming. We don't do that. We are, don't misunderstand me, we are called to corporate worship and prayer and thoughtfulness and piety. We're called to all of that but not in a way where we just throw the good things in this life in the trash. Maybe this illustration is helpful. We don't want to live in such a way where we, metaphorically speaking, sit in the gutter with our Bibles just waiting on death to come. It's not how we live. We enjoy the provisions of God as good gifts from the Father of life who created this world out of the fountainhead of his goodness. And we enjoy his good gifts now as a foretaste of what's coming. Second thing we can say about wisdom today. Not only do we uphold that there are good things in this life, we also affirm that there is a real sense of misery in this life. Think again of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. You know one of the things that he says repeatedly. He uses the word vanity, vanity, meaninglessness, futility. That's what characterizes life in this fallen world. What is done under the sun, Solomon says, is grievous to me. We don't shove suffering and pain aside with slogans and motivational jargon. For our part, we let the sloganeers make their magnets and their buttons and their figurines. And we sit with the tempted, with the weak, and with the heartbroken, and grieve with them. No magnet on the refrigerator can recover the Eden that was lost. 
No catchy motivational slogan can deal with the longing of our souls, can deal with our sense that we were created for something much more noble than this. No Christian fortune cookie can help the fact that eternity has been written into our hearts and God has done it in such a way that we cannot know what he's done from the beginning to the end. In concluding this first reflection on our present sufferings in the gospel, this is wisdom. To use old language, we cling to this truth that only Jesus and only the salvation that he accomplished is the verity the certainty that can deal with our souls. The hope of the resurrection and of seeing Jesus as he is and of being with him is meant to help us to patiently endure the sufferings of this present time. Now notice that I did not say, make us feel better. That's not the promise. Help us endure with patience, yes. Help us to feel better, not necessarily. None of what we are considering today means that we will necessarily feel better about the trials and the sufferings, but we have a steadfast anchor for our souls in the midst of them. And we have an unshakable hope and are going to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so in all of this, beloved, we do well to not only have an eye to our suffering, but even more so to have an eye to the sufferings of Christ to whom we are being conformed and in whom we have been saved. That's reflection number one. Number two, the otherworldliness of the Christian faith. The otherworldliness of the Christian faith. Let's all acknowledge this right now. Everyone in this room, myself included, we are all way too earthbound in how we think, how we operate. We're way too earthbound when it comes to good things. We obsess over them. We live for them. We view them as ultimate. We all do. We're also far too earthbound when it comes to trials and suffering. Here's what I mean. I'm even talking in the church. We tend to focus on how trials will make us more resilient now. We tend to focus on how we learn through trials now. How we're made stronger and better now. We talk as though the end goal of suffering is self-improvement. As Christians, though, we must view our suffering and our trials through the lens of Christ for us, through the lens of our bodily resurrection, through the lens of the new heavens and the new earth. If we stop short of all that, we do not help ourselves. We functionally become like the world. There isn't a football coach or a military man or woman out there who wouldn't agree that we learn perseverance through hard things. We do not trust in Christ for this life only. 
our trials in the purposes of God are not for this life only in that regard. We view our suffering and our trials through the lens of Christ for us in the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. And it is in this way that we learn by the Spirit to trust Christ in the midst of suffering and weakness. That's the goal. Not that you would necessarily become strong in and of yourself, but that we would learn all the more to trust Christ regardless of circumstance. Taking our cue from Paul in our text, we do well to acknowledge the trials and the sufferings and the spiritual dangers that still afflict the saints. We do well to acknowledge that there is still weakness and frailty in believers. And given that we hope for what we don't see, and given that we trust Christ, not just for this life, but for the life to come, we need to recalibrate how we view success in the Christian life. Success in the Christian life, saints, is not defined by mountaintop experiences. It is not measured by the number of spiritual skins on the wall. Rather, success, if that's what we want to call it, is measured by the degree to which we continue to trust in Christ and hope for the world to come in the midst and despite of the trials and sufferings of this life. That's the Christian life. Christians are pilgrims in this world. We cannot forget that. We are sojourners. As was said earlier, we tend to try to make this world our home. We tend to think about it like it is. We must remind ourselves that we are looking for a better country, a heavenly one. We must remind ourselves that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So what is then needful for us? What do we need? I'm turning in my Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. I invite you to turn there with me. Remember, we are not home yet. Listen to these words in light of that. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, because of all that, because of everything that Christ has done, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. In light of Christ, may we draw near with the full assurance of faith. May we together hold fast the confession of our hope that Christ has saved us. Moving on, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That 
is what is needful for us now. The ministry of the church, beloved, is not meant primarily to make us better now. The ministry of the church is meant to prepare us for the world to come. We will do well to remember that. May that inform all of our interactions with one another. May that inform all of the ways that we speak with one another. Third reflection, our conclusion. Maybe you're discouraged because you cannot conceive of the world to come. I don't know, maybe this is you. I get discouraged by this often. I can't conceive of it in detail. Maybe you're discouraged by that. But saints, take heart. None of the saints through history have been able to conceive of this reality. We are not alone in wanting to know more of what it will be like and potentially being discouraged that we don't know. Regarding the world to come, we don't see it. We can't clearly conceive of it, but we believe it. You believe it. Consider the words of the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. You can turn there as well if you want. These are good words in light of what we've considered from Romans today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's some rock to put under your feet. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That sounds familiar. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a good way to think about our suffering and our faith. Then these words... May these words encourage your soul. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Saints, in our good moments, be comforted by this. In our good moments, nothing stirs our hearts like Christ. We love him. We are in awe of him. We are comforted by him. We are gripped when we think about what he did for us. We are astonished at his love and his compassion for a person who is rightly called the chief of sinners. In our good moments, Nothing thrills our hearts more than the thought of being with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. Nothing. Right now, our salvation is not visible. Can't see it. Can't touch it. Right now, we live by faith, not sight. We hope 
for what we don't see. We wait for it with patience. We don't know exactly what the change will be like or how exactly it's going to be accomplished, the resurrection and the renewal of all things. We don't know exactly in what form the new heavens and the new earth will exist. But we know that it will be perfectly suited for the glorified Christ and his glorified people. We know that it will be the product of God's wisdom and of his abounding goodness. We take heart in that. None of us know the day or the hour of the Lord's return either. And this is for a twofold reason. We don't know the day or the hour so that we might be vigilant. But we also don't know the day or the hour so that every day when we get up out of bed in the morning, we are prepared to say, today could be the day. Come, Lord Jesus. May it be. And may the Lord give us faith between now and that day. Let's pray.